Hi listeners, um, if you're here, you are one of our Patreon subscribers to Suite 212 and you were getting some frankly priceless extra content. After recording our Resonance 104.4 FM show on the state of the nation novel, Carl Neville, Sam Byers and I uh, had enjoyed talking to each other so much and all agreed that it'd be interesting to address some questions about what uh, literature about the Jeremy Corbyn led Labour Party and the political project around it might look like um, and how you know in the wake of that pretty kind of seismic and historical defeat uh, what Britain in the 2020s might look like and how literature might attempt to capture that so you know we'll just kind of go straight in um, I know I have spoken an awful lot over the last um well, over a year, it's sort of coming up to 18 months since the frankly catastrophic 2019 general election. And obviously I was quite involved with that election campaign from the point of view of a kind of arts propagandist. I coordinated and co-wrote the Culture for Labour letter that was published uh, in Tribune, I think November 2019. I did that with um, Kit Kalis from Influx Press, who is, of course, publishing my forthcoming volume of short stories but um you know we persuaded 500 um people in the arts to sign that letter I think both of you signed it um and there are a number of, of writers on there fiction writers of varying different kind of ages and and backgrounds um and obviously that project ended in uh, this catastrophic uh, election result and a lot of people on the British left have been trying to process that result and how we got there from the promising 2017 general election result for the last year or so. Um, in my work I've been addressing this quite a lot so I interviewed Jeremy Corbyn on this program of course I think a lot of our listeners will have heard that about the role that the arts played in his project and you know not just cultural policy but also a kind of artistic vision for Britain this kind of modernist vision of you know, recalibrating the whole country really, you know, who holds power and which direction um, we move in politically. I think this ties into some of the things that Carl was talking about with eminent domain on the main program. Um, and, you know, what the defeat of, of what our defeat meant um, for the direction that this society would go in, which would probably mean, and I think has meant an intensification of the direction it's been taken for the last 40 years. Um, and I'm really interested in how novelists and literary writers might respond to that. You know, I initially thought about writing some sort of non-fiction book about the Corbyn project because I've been so involved with it for the last sort of four or five years that, you know, I've, I really feel compelled to write something long form about it. Um, initially, I wrote a long account of the day of the election, the 2019 election for um, what I thought might become a book called In the Intense Now and ended up just publishing the 6,000 words on the Repeater Books website. And actually my kind of desire to turn that into a non-fiction book has, has waned. I think largely because it's so obvious there are going to be a lot of non-fiction books about the, the four, four and a half years or so that Jeremy Corbyn was, was leader of the Labour Party. We already have one from Owen Jones, we've had one from uh, Gabriel Pogrand and someone else, I can't remember who the co-writer was. Um, there are more to come. Um, I feel fairly confident that um, if not Corbyn himself, then Seamus Milne's book will be a pretty, um, well, I think Seamus Milne will write a book that will be a fairly comprehensive account of what was done. Um, so I'm finding myself less interested in non-fiction responses to it, but more interested in potential fictional responses to it. In the, um, in the Resonance programme, I talked about the problem of Brexit fiction being too easily identifiable to an ideological position if it used certain kind of narrative tropes. And I think something different might go on here, which is that anyone who takes the time to write a novel about the Corbyn project will probably be fairly sympathetic to what it was trying to achieve. Um, you know, ideally critical of its, its limitations and shortcomings and, and failings on a number of issues, but broadly, at least critically supportive of, of the project and maybe aiming for a readership that was also supportive of the project. Um, so I, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to 
stop this preamble there, but I, I wondered if either of you had any kind of initial thoughts in in response to what I've what I've just said. I mean, I think I would say that I was almost immediately sort of like post post the um, sort of election, uh, the defeat. I was sort of immediately drawn back into being more interested in um, the arts. Effectively, it felt like okay that we've been stymied there, um, and like we need in some ways now to 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 go back and and reimagine what the set of possibilities might be. I mean, I think Corbynism emerged. Um, you know, in sort of very spontaneously. Um, it was also something that I think nobody anticipated, nobody had planned. It was very ad hoc in Kuwait. We were improvising all the time in lots of ways. Nonetheless, lots of good things came out of it. We hit a wall there, but I don't think that energy has dissipated. And I don't think the utopian desire that animated it has dissipated. Um, and it'll swirl around. And I think that there will be a period when we go back into um, investigating cultural forms, artistic and imaginative sorts of responses, really. Um, and I don't think that's retreatist necessarily. I mean, I think it's simply we don't have anywhere else to go. Let's try and build up um, and allow the sort of radical imagination to effloresce through through sort of artistic forms. So I think um, yeah, I'm not interested. I don't want to read a sort of um, you know autopsy of like what went wrong. I just have absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. I'm a bit like okay, well that didn't work. Okay, right, but let's get on with nonetheless achieving the aims of this project through whatever other means become apparent to us. Really. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Like, I also, um, like, don't see in my future a kind of um, uh, a novel that's about, like, the kind of mechanics of what happened at that election or, or what went wrong. Um, but but just, just to speak very personally, you know, I haven't always felt that the Labour Party represented my political and moral views. And, and so one of the things that really was important to me in, in, in the Corbyn project was that I felt that finally someone was making a moral position about society that um, was almost, if you like, beyond the usual kind of party political positioning. It, it was an ethical position. It was a moral position. And, you know, as someone who um, has spent a lot of time working in and around community care, who's worked with vulnerable adults, people with mental health problems, homeless people. I felt that after, you know, a decade of austerity, we were at this really urgent point to me, it was and still is like a national emergency uh, that, that we, uh, you know, we urgently need to do something about social care and the benefit system because it is, you know, wrecking people's lives and it's putting them into destitution. And so it felt like this almost perfect confluence of an emergency and someone who, who had what seemed to me to be the solution to that emergency. And so it felt very, very urgent. And so the, the failure of that project, you know, I, I think, you know, what I really notice in, in my own fiction and what I notice when I talk to friends who were more closely involved in that project than I was, particularly, I think, younger people, is that we really need to address the issue of disappointment. And, and one of the things, and, and I feel that's got lost in, in a way, that that sort of the emotional fallout of that election, because there's a real tendency among what we might call the centrist left and, and also on the right, almost I think to mock people's idealism and, and mock the fact that people believed in a better world and almost to kind of paint that project as naive and to see in its inevitable collapse, almost the sort of restoration of some kind of rational order. I feel it will be fiction, fiction that is well placed to explore the emotional impact of of what happened and and the very real sense of despair that some people might be feeling having invested many of them for the first time in their lives in a party political you know uh, election based project and then and then to feel that that has not worked out and i think when you add on to that the pandemic brexit I'm very interested to see what the emotional temperature of British fiction is 
over the next few years because I, I, I personally feel in my own work that it is not, you know, it's certainly not going to be uplit. Let, let's put it that way. Like I feel, I do feel a sense of despair about things. I feel, you know, honestly, like a kind of a sense of grief and that's expressed by other people I speak to as well. And so it's interesting to see how that will filter not so much into the theme and subjects of novels, but into the tone of, mm. of what emerges in, in, into British fiction over the next few years. Well, that's that's really interesting because while you were both talking, I was thinking to myself a bit about, well, what can I think of that is sort of works of art in, in any field or format mm. that, you know, explicitly ties into the Corbyn project. And I thought of two things, really. Uh, one of which was Ken Loach's film, Sorry We Missed You, which came out in 2019, which I don't think mentions Corbyn or the Labour Party anywhere, but it's, you know, about this sort of precarious gig worker who, you know, is very, very reliant on society being changed in broadly the way that Corbyn's Labour were arguing for. And, uh, of course, Ken Loach recorded a party political um, election um, campaign video using the cast and the setting of Sorry We Missed You, um, you know, explicitly to say, look, you know, the characters in this film that you were very emotionally affected by, uh, they really need this Labour manifesto to be enacted. Indeed, I saw Sorry We Missed You, uh, the Rio cinema when it came out, which I think was sort of October or November 2019. It was sort of in the run up to or maybe early on in the election campaign. And I kind of cried all the way through it. Um, it's a really kind of brutal film. Um, I'd like to come back to Sorry We Missed You, actually, uh, in a bit, because I, I think there's something quite interesting to think about how much that film, you know, preaches to the converted um, and who saw it and what that meant. Um, but there's the, the other, I think, genuinely, certainly, I think the best creative response I saw in response to Corbyn's labour was in poetry. Um, some listeners may remember that there were a couple of volumes of poems for Jeremy Corbyn early on, which were fairly sort of toe-curlingly excruciating, I think, for the large part. Although there was one of them that just repeated the lines, no Blair, over and over again, which is, for in terms of form and content, something I can really get behind. Um, but there was a um, magnificent long poem by um, a writer who is a bit younger than us, I think in his early 30s, uh, Ed Luca, um, called How Did You Survive January? which really uh, dealt with that sense of grief that Sam, you were talking about. But I think for a lot of reasons, um, you know, we couldn't dwell on that sense of grief for too long and we couldn't really turn it into a novel in itself. I think partly because the end of such a novel would be too preordained, it would be too politically obvious in its alignment. Um, but it also just takes too long. You know, Ed's poem, I think was written, um, I mean, the title, How Did You Survive January implies sort of February or March. 2020, which of course is very brief interregnum between mourning the election result and the pandemic coming. Uh, so maybe there's something to be said about how poetry and, and even film, because they, um, they're things that can be made and issued more quickly, uh, were more capable of capturing a lot of the emotions specifically around the Corbyn project, mm -hmm. rather than the state of Britain it was trying to address. Uh, poetry and film could capture that better because they don't have the same production lags that literature has. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I was writing Eminent Domain, I was quite, um, I was quite involved in a lot of the uh, stuff that was going on around capitalism. It's more utopian sort of um, elements and so on. Um, but I think like that novel's got quite a bleak um, end. And um, I think that possibly, even though it was written and finished before the Corbyn project of um, ran aground, Yes, it was. Um, then I still think that, like, you know, possibly there was an anticipation on my part that things would go quite um, badly wrong in some ways, though I didn't feel it on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, I suppose perhaps it's just underlying pessimism, knowing what you do once you get to a certain age about the power of the British state to derail anything which is not in its interests quite comprehensively or whatever. But, like, in, in terms of because I'm interested in counterfactuals and speculative stuff. I mean, I think the thing is that, like, you know, you imagine the sort of, um, or they study the sort of counterfactual Corbyn wins, say wins in 2017, or they win in 2019, they don't take whatever position. Then, then I mean, that unfortunately then immediately leads, leads you on to the, 
well, they just assassinate him sort of scenario or something like that anyway. So, so your brain runs up against the kind of unfortunate impasse, which is just like, um, you know, the monolithic uh, power of the British state and its ruthlessness means that even if you can get somebody into office, you know, then the, the fight begins there, you know, that's when the really the big guns come out or whatever. So I think finding those, I think there's something like a counterfactual sort of a novel around Corbyn getting in there, which has been done before, um, and I've forgotten the name, or Very British Coup, for instance. But something like that I think is interesting because, again, you can use it to expose structural elements of the British state and uh, the ways in which they are and would be employed as a way of sort of arming yourself against the situation in the future in some ways, I mean, prefiguratively imagining it in some ways. Just a quick note on a very British coup. I did actually watch it in the aftermath of the <laughs> defeat, uh, which is a really bad time to watch it. But I, the, I, I watched the TV adaptation. I didn't read the novel. Um, and I, I only got two thirds of the way through. It's a three part series. And I couldn't watch the third part because mm. it just made me too angry. And one reason why it made me too angry is because obviously it speculates on like a left wing Labour leader actually taking power. Um, Harry Perkins, I think his name is. Mm. And, um, you know, it it shows him being destroyed by the British state. It doesn't really give you too much on the internal Labour Party machinations. Mm. There's some some of that, but there's not loads. And of course, the reason it made me angry was because I thought, well, we we didn't take power. We came reasonably close. It looked in mm. 2017 like we probably could. Um, but, you know, what we got from the state and from the media and from the from within the Labour Party was far, far worse than what Perkins gets in 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 the series. Um, so I found it I found it quite a hard watch like for that, for that reason. Yeah, I think it's um, sorry, Sam, I'm just going to jump in and say one more thing here, which is I think once being as somebody who grew up in the 80s and saw some of the um, stuff that went on there sort of firsthand from the perspective of being sort of a t- working class teenage boy or whatever. Um, I think what's been particularly interesting with the, the Corbynite stuff um, or the post-Corbyn stuff is the extent to which the pathology of it, really, the extent to which like it's the illegitimacy of any position left of centre um, is regarded as absolute. And to some extent, you know, desire to just eradicate us, I suppose. I mean, not, not like literally liquidate us, although... Um, but like just the sort of the total impermissibility now of um, anything which might ask for uh, something which isn't the most um, sort of didactic market oriented form of neoliberalism, I think has reached a sort of, is reaching a pathological sort of peak. Um, And so I think that, yeah, I mean, you know, we were treated more cruelly even than the worst sort of fictional um, depiction of these things is probably right, you know, because I think that the imagination has moved on to such a way now that, that, um, that the right and the centre have become pathological, uh, I think. I'm sorry to say that, but um, I think they have. I think it's really interesting to consider as well that, um, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm saying anything other people haven't said by saying that it's, um, it's very conspicuous the extent to which uh, the, the right have pivoted so quickly to kind of culture war, content and away from any kind of material or structural argument um, for their project. It's more just a cultural argument against an imagined opposing project. And and that's been much remarked upon and much commented upon. But what I think hasn't been talked about as much is that if you're gonna move everything onto the plane of the culture war, then there are questions for culture itself. There are questions for art itself. And so although we imagine culture wars playing out as being about culture and like they play out online and you know everyone has an argument about this or that, I think there are very real ramifications for culture itself. And I think when you couple that with some of the work that the right wing project at the moment is doing around universities, around education you know i you know i make no bones about the fact that i imagine it being um, a a somewhat more challenging artistic and cultural landscape and so i think it's going to be it's also going to be interesting to see how novelists adapt to that because it was already to be totally honest with you when i was working on perfidious albion i I don't know if you felt the same thing cole but 
um, there were more than one sort of British um, literary think piece about how, you know, fiction shouldn't really be too political or like, you know, the political novel always ended up being a polemic or really, you know, the role of fiction was to be subtle, which always seemed to me to be like a, a kind of covert way of suppressing um, artistic anger and, uh, you know, kind of overt political expression through the arts. And so that, in a way, the combination of those two things now, to me, makes a more, more challenging literary and artistic landscape. And it, it feels to me like um, artists are gonna have to be quite brave, actually, and they're gonna have to risk ridicule and they're gonna have to risk um, like a really predictable critical response and they're gonna have to risk their work being co-opted into um, wider cultural and political arguments in ways that um, they're perhaps not up for, you know. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm, sorry, I'm possibly no, jumping no, in there, but, but I'm just, I'm thinking, I, just because I just remembered this thing that um, I was going to say earlier on, which was, um, like, Julia had a question about whether the State of the Nation novel was um, sort of implicitly sort of white, cis, perhaps. And I think that, like, I, I think my initial response to, to that question was thinking that, like, um, yeah, to some extent, because in, to some extent, it's a little bit of a cop-out. I mean, the novel, in some sense, is a little bit of a cop-out because you can do, especially when you're doing these big multi-character, multi-layered novels, what you're supposed to do is sort of balance everything out, give all of the competing perspectives, make sure everybody's voice is heard. There's a certain liberal cop-out in all of that, in a way, which is you say, well, look, I've done justice to everybody, but who can finally ultimately say whose perspective should dominate or whatever, you know? So there is a certain... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm saying cop out. Um, there is a certain distance from taking a particular political stance or whatever. And I think, like, um, and I mean, that's the case in like both of the things that I wrote, I think, really, and it's the case in Eminent Domain. All of the, even though everybody's on the left, all of the conflicting forces get held in balance. That's partly what you're supposed to do as a writer of good fiction. But, it, but of course, it inclines you much more towards a sort of liberal um, worldview than an overtly polemical position. I mean, I'm happy to write polemical uh, leftist fiction myself. Those novels ended up the way they did for particular reasons. Um, but I think you're right. I think it's um, absolutely all right. And I think it's inevitable and unavoidable now that even if you write it, if you write something like a state of the nation novel, that nonetheless it's a polemical and a more overtly polemical sort of take on things. Um, the problem. The problem there is that you then run the risk of taking particular sectors and then just reducing them to sort of caricatures, doing the Mike Lee thing where you've got the sort of fully realised um, sort of working class couple and then you've got these very thin depictions of just like the evil yuppie or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you're going to have to strike this balance between being clearly on one side, mm -hmm. clearly offering a sort of um, a polemical or a progressive sort of narrative without just reducing other things to caricature uh, and... That will be, I guess, the um, partly the challenge there. Yeah, and I'd like to sort of raise a question about audience. And this was something I was sort of alluding to when I was talking about the Ken Loach film, which is that, you know, obviously Ken Loach began his career, you know, making films for the BBC that would be shown on their like Wednesday play or play for today strand. And, you know, you could expect to reach millions of people and, you know, not necessarily people who shared your politics. Whereas, of course, by now, you know, Ken Loach is not showing, maybe he's showing on TV. I've heard I, Daniel Blake, was on was on television. I'm not sure about, I'm sorry we missed you. But, um, you know, you can't just sort of expect to pick up casual viewers who don't already agree with you in the same way. And so there is this issue of Ken Loach, you know, talking in Britain to people like me who already agree with it. And, you know, taking the film to, you know, the Cannes Film Festival or something and people saying, oh, what a brave depiction of, 21st century Britain and then nothing really kind of changes especially not for the type of people depicted in the film um and you know there's sort of questions about audience that both of you have just raised there I mean Carl you know both of your novels were published by Repeater which is you know fairly implicitly if not explicitly a leftist publisher um and will probably be going to those kind of audiences Sam your your two most recent novels both with uh, Faber I think mm -hmm. um which you know sort of occupies quite a sort of different cultural space uh, so i wonder if there's another problem for people wanting to write 
fiction dealing with the sort of Corbyn movement and with the fallout from it um, of feeling you're going to be writing for people that already agree with you. And there's something about the Tory culture war that Sam, you were talking about, which is about very much like engineering cultural space so that you don't overtly censor um, dissenting views, but you make it more difficult for them to be, you know, socioeconomically, you make it more difficult for them to be produced. Mm-hmm. And you kind of whittle away the social structures that might let those views reach people who don't already agree with them or aren't prepared to look for them. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I, I think about that slightly differently in that I think um, I think you can, to an extent, drive yourself mad thinking about both impact and an audience and who's going to read it and what effect it will have on them, et cetera, et cetera. And where I've got to with that argument is, that, you know, I, I don't think a, a novel's going to change the face of society. Like, I, you know, I, I'm under no illusions about that. And I don't sit down when I'm writing and think like, OK, like this one's going to take down a toy government. Um, but I, I personally think there's value if, if we think about the, the collective unconscious or even the collective political consciousness. I see novelists and artists as fulfilling a kind of processing role on behalf of everyone else. And so not to get too kind of mystical about it, I feel that role would still be fulfilled regardless of who sees the art, who buys the art, who consumes the art. It's just important that there are artists dotted around all over the country, almost functioning like kind of organs in a digestive system, processing what is happening and filtering it through their consciousness and changing it through that process into something else and I I, like that to me is a more valuable project even though it's not a measurable or a tangible project than the project of producing something where in 20 years time you can say like well that one thing changed society or whatever because because I feel like that in itself is almost to in uh, quite a capitalist way overemphasize the product over the process and one of the things that sort of concerns me about artistic and particularly literary discourse in Britain at the moment is that it's very product oriented and and less there is less on the inherent value of making art producing art thinking in artistic terms which is almost a kind of magical thinking I, mm. I think we could we could say and so I think there will always be value in that project regardless of who pays attention to it. A thing that that always sticks with me um, I just want to throw this in because I think it's really interesting um, as an undergraduate I read quite a lot of sort of American kind of turn of the 18, uh, 19th and 20th century quite leftist literature so I read Matigue by Frank Norris which was the basis for uh, Eric von Stroheim's famous film Greed um, and I also read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair which I think was published in about 1906 and it's a realist novel about a family of Latvian immigrants to the US um, and you know Upton Sinclair said I really wanted you know basically said I wanted to bring down American capitalism with this novel um, and he didn't manage that sadly but um there's a very famous scene in uh, in the jungle. It's a very long scene where Jurgis, the central character, is working in like a sausage factory, and you know Sinclair, with great precision, documents the processes at play in this sausage factory. And people were so appalled by it that it did lead to certain overhauls in like American sort of food safety standards, which is something. I mean, actually, I think that's quite an impressive thing for a novel to achieve and Sinclair was sort of disappointed with that being the outcome but also kind of pleased and proud and I think there's something interesting there about just how you know very few books very few novels or plays or artistic works you know achieve something as seismic as as you know causing a grand political change but they can have impacts that you don't maybe necessarily expect and I think you can't write 
with such grand aims because you know you'll drive yourself insane as, as you say i mean i think like uh, when you mentioned um can not jelly run you know it was certainly the case that something like kathy come home as well affected legislation because you know so uh, however many million people saw it and then um you know there was a debate um in houses of parliament the next day and legislation came out of it and so on but that sort of narrow cast world where um you know the novel dominates or predominates as the sort of the form that everybody uh, is engaged by then tv or whatever i mean that's that's clearly gone now and there is the just the siloing effect of um of the internet really but i think um i mean with regard to this question of like sort of what can the i mean if we're asking you know how, how can a novel effect change or whatever then i don't think like a novel alone can but i think you know i think um young people especially are drawn to novelty and excitement right as much as they can be and i think it's sort of incumbent on us to try and produce um, both institutions um, and works that will draw people into thinking about and asking questions about sort of the possibilities of the society that they live in so i don't think anybody needs to be told um hey, you're 17, your future looks pretty bad for these reasons. I think that they're um, deeply aware of that, right? But I think that, again, I return to the sort of the speculative element of it. I think that, um, you know, what we need to do is say, um, none of that's inevitable, that we have to continually hammer against what Mark Fisher would have called capitalist realism, the sense that, well, you're on this particular path, this is the traje trajectory, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good, whatever, suck it up, kids. Um, I think that we have to um, create works of art that, that, that uh, speak to the exciting sort of utopian potentials that inhere in the moment. And we have to find ways to get those works into people's hands. And what we're doing really is we're consciousness raising up, just mood elevating, making daily life more tolerable by offering a sort of a concrete or pragmatic version of how those things might be changed and how they might be better. That seems to me to be like the political value of something that you would do as a writer at this point, as much as support mechanism, keep that utopian urge alive. Um, really, yeah. I think we're also pressing at perhaps a stylistic question as well. Like when you, when you bring up Sinclair, um, you know, I, I think it's undeniable that that what we might call the journalistic novel is is not a particularly well regarded or widely practiced form at the moment and that there's a, there's a lot of very understandable reasons for that which is that we you know prioritize we want to prioritize um you know really people talking about their own experience or um uh, people a certain kind of subjectivity and that there's a suspicion of the idea that you could ever go you know like zola into the minds and like observe closely a life that is completely foreign to your own and then and then document it um, and I understand that suspicion and of course there's, there's always the suspicion that we might end up with a sort of like voyeuristic um, you know like sort of poverty porn project or something um, but equally I think we we have to be careful as novelists that we don't over internalize the idea that we can't go out there and you know investigate stuff and encounter stuff and find out about stuff and hear about people's experiences and and try and do something with them and and so i think it's going to be really interesting to see if that kind of suspicion of that kind of novelistic approach you know like i think of you know someone a writer i think about a lot is william volman who has this um I would say like incredibly unfashionable project of going out there and spending time in like the sex working district of San Francisco or, um, you know, um, like writing um, these kind of really uh, like brutally um, raw accounts of hanging out with skinhead gangs. And, and, you know, he's been doing that for years. He's books like seven, 800 pages long and like everything about them kind of screams lack of commercial success but when you sort of tot up his project as a whole I think there's something really powerful about it I think there's something really powerful about his project of of witness um and you know I I, I do wonder if perhaps we we need to bear that in mind 
as as we kind of move forward to address some of these issues with the novel that we we may have to get out of ourselves a little bit and and yeah. we may have to accept that that witness is uh, you know, in, an inherently political and radical act, if, if done in the right way. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting because, you know, something that I felt very strongly, and I think a lot of people who'd been very involved with the Corbyn project and perhaps very online as well, was that after that, like, seismic shock of that election result, um, and, you know, I think by the time the day of the poll in, in December 2019 came around, like, most of us weren't expecting to win. Mm -hmm. um but thought that maybe we'd get a similar result to 2017 um and so to see such a crushing defeat really led a lot of people to think well look have we been living in a bubble as you know the centrist and right-wing press are always telling us we are and you know i don't think that was true you know the narrative was like nobody wanted this project and it's like well actually 10 10 million people voted for it they were just incredibly badly distributed mm -hmm. um and you know in a relatively small number of seats um but a lot of us felt the need to go out and kind of, you know, think about what the rest of the nation was like outside of the cities where most of us live. Uh, and a lot of the most more interesting journalism I saw was kind of doing exactly that and talking about going canvassing in, you know, marginal seats or previously safe Labour seats that went blue, um, you know, in kind of, you know, towns um, and, you know, more, more kind of rural or semi-urban areas suburban areas, I should say. Um, and that might be an interesting thing for the, for, the, for the novel and for literature to do. And it ties into another thing I thought about around about that time, which was, you know, much like Ed Luca, I spent the whole of January just grieving. And then February kind of thinking, okay, well, how am I just going to enjoy life on a very basic level again after this thing I'd sunk so much energy into and cared about so much had been destroyed? And in early March, I went to Bristol Transformed, which is put on by Momentum. And I was with um, Owen Hathley. And the two of us were very surprised at how not just physically full every event there was, but also how lively it was. Um, I was on a panel about the arts and the direction they might take post-2019 election and the importance of them. Um, but more generally, you know, no one was talking about the Labour Party, even like everyone knew Keir Starmer was going to win by that point, although the contest had another month to run, I think. But no, you know, everyone already could see that, you know, there was an aggressive centrist project to just take us right back to the sort of dark days of the mid 2000s, the kind of capitalist realism that Carl was talking about. And I guess this links back to something, Carl, you said at the very beginning of this conversation about being drawn back to the art. Um, because you and I, you know, both were around, obviously, in the um, in the 2000s, and lots of our writing was just focused on culture and the arts, and we weren't particularly interested in the Labour Party at that point because we just didn't think it could be a useful vehicle for for any sort of social transformation, and that you know, in the British electoral system, nothing else would emerge like in its place. Um, so I'm wondering if, yeah, if you think that in the 2020s, there might be more of a concern, more of a return to sort of questions around form and structure. Sam, you've just said that, you know, the journalistic novel isn't really a particularly attractive vehicle for people at this point. I think partly because there is so much actual journalism around. Um, but I wonder if, yeah, we could just maybe conclude by talking a bit about the political terrain that we're in now, the, maybe the sense of hopelessness that a lot of people on the left feel and younger people feel about having this political project taken away. Um, and maybe how that might manifest itself in terms of form as well as content. Um, I think, well, I mean, I think what's possibly gonna happen in terms of like the political terrain is that um, I think that to some extent, I think that the, the, the access to the Labour Party and Corbynism and the possibility of an electoral project works as quite a nice buffer in some ways for energies which would otherwise have been um, slightly more radical. So I think that, um, you know, what we're probably going to see now is, you know, again, to use another trope, the breakup of Britain to some extent. So, you know, Welsh independence is surging, Scottish independence is almost locked in, the Northern Independence Party are uh, broadly regarded as not a very serious project or whatever. 
but they certainly do point the way towards increased federalization of Britain and so on. And um, we were chatting with um, some guys in Wales who are for Welsh independence. One guy was saying, you know, I urge the um, population of England to join us in this project to basically break up the British state and to get rid of the power of sort of entrenched elites in Westminster, really. And there's a straight, there's a funny kind of call from all of these different national projects to particular to carry out the kinds of radical uh, politics, which just isn't possible via the Labour Party. That's an extraordinarily perilous project in some ways, because the pushback against it will be uh, enormous and possibly militarised, at least in my imagination, if people start deciding say, you know, if people start setting on a national level, or on a city level, we're going to start becoming more autonomous here if there's a lot of pushback in Liverpool against the imposition of home rule effectively, um, and so on, then we're starting to get into a situation that looks as um, contested on the ground as many elements of the 1980s were with the minor strike and the rioting and so on. So I think that that's on the political horizon, um, because I don't think that they can get the lid back I just don't think they can stamp down enough. They can have as many culture wars as they want. It's just not going to fundamentally work. No, people's material conditions are deteriorating year on year. There's only a certain um, extent to which a culture war can be a band-aid over those things. Right? Um, so I think we're heading into sort of, um, you know, quite interesting and quite complicated territory. What effect that will have on um, fictional representation um, I don't know. I mean, my most obvious and slightly try answer would be that it'll start to become in itself perhaps more fragmented. And um, I think if it's trying to capture the now, if we're talking about a state of the nation novel that's trying to capture the now, then I think it will inevitably um, be novels that are extremely fractious and fragmented, not to get too alliterative. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's still going to be... Um... Um, a, a, a great emphasis on individual subjectivity like you know I, I think that's um, that's one way of dealing with an increasingly kind of complicated and fractious um, and rapidly changing external world is to um, sort of focus on interiority and the the subjective experience of that world over and above the kind of mechanics of material reality um, and and that that trend is already I think like well well in effect and I I think it's going to continue and I I agree with Carl that I think um, fragmentation um, and perhaps a lack of linearity um, or move away from linearity are, are going to be things that people try um, but I'm also interested to consider what the kind of emotional tenor of that is going to be and I think. Um, something that sometimes um, hamstrings certainly the, the English novel is a sort of distrust of excessive emotion, um, uh, uh, you know, e either too much sentimentality or too much, uh, you know, certainly too much anger is, you know, people can react with discomfort to that, even being too celebratory. I think, you know, we, we have this deep discomfort with excessively expressed emotion. And I think there's this, there's almost this sense that a good style, English style of fictional writing is one that is very poised and very restrained. I mean, you actually see people use the word restrained as a compliment in, in literary criticism. And so it's interesting to me to think about how uh, we might be able to force a space that is more emotionally unrestrained as a way of expressing, you know, a lot of the feelings we've been we've been talking about, um, and um, what shape that will take. I can't exactly say, but I, I think it's a very serious question for novelists at the moment because I I think we're about to enter an era uh, that that can't be dealt with in a particularly restrained way. And, and so I think the, the English novel, as we sort of conceptualise it, might struggle, you know, all that kind of subtlety and concision and, you know, crystalline prose and restraint might just not be up to the job of uh, a frightening and potentially quite hysterical time. Can I just slightly disagree with Sam there? 
it's only very it's only very slight. I'm just sort of well, it's not in a disagreement, but I'm just interested in this like the notion of the um, interior and exterior thing because I mean I tend to think that there will be greater emphasis on exteriority and the state of nation thing that we're talking about because at least for me um, the period of say what you might want to call the sort of high watermark a sort of sort of neoliberal hegemony which was like the uh, sort of early 2000s really for me that was the point at which I, I think the point in which like external reality has become um, something which you have absolutely no purchase on that, there are, that, that, that this is the end of history um, you know, the political process is just like completely removed and detached from, from any um, ability to shape it in any way. Um, when there's this sort of just general opacity to everything and a stasis, a stasis and opacity of the, with, with the two overwhelming affects of that period, that for me was a period in which, which my own interiority became much more of a sort of a, a consideration. I was almost forced back into an interior space because there was no way for me get, to, to get out and be active in um, either in a temporal or in a spatial kind of sense, right? So, so, so that pushed push me back into the antechamber of the self where you sort of scurry about worrying about what's in there in some ways I don't associate that at least subjectively my own experience I don't associate um, that greater interior or that greater being pushed back into myself with um, the current moment quite the opposite I feel uh, that I've been relieved from that and that I can engage in larger po political projects so that may be generational because again there's an age gap between us and it may be your greater sort of um You'll be a little bit more of a digital native than I am, Sam, and having grown up with all of the kinds of ways in which uh, social media sort of interacts and affects and shapes consciousness. Um, so I, I, I don't know about that, but I'm interested in the ways that we might experience the retreat into interiority or the being pushed back into that interior space differently um, because of perhaps sort of slightly different generational um, experiences there. I know exactly what you you mean, and I, I don't disagree. And I suppose it leads me to um, ask a question, which which I, I don't have an answer to, um, which is is interiority by definition individual, and can we through fiction imagine an interiority that is collective? Um, and and so it seems to me that that fiction is one of very few forms or, or literature, I mean, obviously the short story and, and poetry as well, that might enable us to understand interiority not as bounded by individualism. And that to me is almost a kind of utopian idea, you know, it's back to the idea of the collective unconscious or, or the collective political consciousness or, and so, I think when I talk about uh, interiority, I don't necessarily just mean uh, individual subjectivity. I also mean collective emotional life. And um, I'm, I'm thinking of um, this, like amazing, the novel is the, the greatest kind of record we have of the Western mind. Which I always think is really just this really fascinating way of thinking about the novel as, as this this archive of inner experience. But by definition, when you put all the novels together, rather than just thinking about individual novels, what you're building is is a collective portrait. And so I'm really interested to see if the novel, which which traditionally is quite bounded by individualized subjectivity, whether it can begin to make more interesting movements out of that, which I think would be, you know, I think we could agree would be inherently political. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, again, I think one of the things that um, at the very least is interesting about reading in general um, is, again, of course, I mean, as uh, Juliet mentioned earlier on, partly that exposure to the particularities of a world which is like radically different to or removed from your own but also of course like the commonalities of sort of experience and especially interior experience so the thing i'm right at the moment uses um something called the 10 foot room which is a sort of a buddhist essentially a buddhist text from um sort of like i think 10th century japan um and you know if i read it there are lots of um sort of concrete elements of the world um, that the central character lives in. It's his experience of going off and retreating 
essentially to his hermitage in, in the forest. Uh, lots of expressions of cultly life in Japan, which mean nothing to me, but some of his observations about the ways of man, for instance, or um, what it means to be alive and so on. Of course, my uh, thoughts I've had myself are, and resonate um, completely with my contemporary experience. Um, despite this, we couldn't possibly have lived more different lives in some ways. Um, so, you know, I mean, again, that question of what literature gives you access to, not just as, as a sort of, you know, a collective body of experience, but the ways in which it's sudden, it, you suddenly realise commonalities of experience across time and space and culture, I mean, is almost entirely its um, power, well, not entirely its power, that's too general a statement, but it's, it, you know, it's a powerful element within it. And I think that's something which draws these, um, draws out and combines these kinds of experiences across space and time to suggest commonalities of universality, um, I think is probably something that, yeah, I mean, we, we want as writers to try and tap into as much as possible, while at the same time being sensitive to people's particularity and so on. Um, so again, it's just one of those tricky balancing acts. It's interesting, you're almost kind of pressing at the question of the spiritual there as well, which I increasingly feel um, is going to have to be reckoned with politically and artistically. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what form that takes as well. Well, let me do Sorry, I, you, you were possibly winding up that, uh, Stan, but I'm just going to say that what was interesting in reading your um, your, your most recent novel here was that, that I think there's a question of like um, uh, transcendence in it, right? Um, and I, I just think like it's extraordinary, I think from both left and right and broadly across the culture now, the question of how we can find a transcendent framing. Um, I mean, to some extent it's, it's um, Gaia or, you know, um, the planet or whatever. Um, but how we can find that transcendent framing, I think is the question that this, this life without one uh, and, and its pressures, I think, is, is um, sort of becoming increasingly um, difficult to navigate. So I think that that attempt to find a transcendent framing, you know, terminate spirituality or whatever, I think is probably also going to dominate uh, the thought. So I think we're moving into an age where sort of a new forms of religiosity, I think, are also probably going to um, appear as well. Um, quite a lot to have to deal with, probably, but we'll have a crack, you know. Yeah, I think it might be a question that we, uh, again, leave open to our to our audience as we've been going for quite a long time now. Uh, you know, uh, we, we we all have uh, have have things to do. But, um, yeah, Sam and Carl, thanks so much for this impromptu conversation that's been absolutely fascinating to listen to and a real joy to facilitate. So thanks so much for both the shows. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, absolutely, hasn't it? Um, listeners, hope you agree. Um, we'll be back on Resonance FM next month, so hope to see you there. All right, take care. Goodbye.